lot of people did say like that was the worst experience I've ever had I'm not doing it again um some people just flat out said I'm not having kids again um one person actually she came all the way from Jamaica to have her baby in Canada and said she would never have a baby in Canada again so yeah that says a lot to me Welcome and thank you for joining the first episode of Critical Conversations, a healthcare and sciences anti-oppression podcast. Each episode, we will invite a guest who applies a critical lens to healthcare services, research, or education to discuss ways to disrupt oppression and highlight resilience of marginalized communities. This podcast is run by students in the U of T Tamarity Faculty of Medicine Learner Equity Action and Discussion, or LEAD Committee, which is composed of learners who are interested in taking action on anti-oppression and social justice issues. Whether you're listening in, you're on a commute, on a walk, or while working, I encourage you to actively listen into this insightful conversation and think critically. I hope you enjoyed this first episode of Critical Conversations, and now let's meet our hosts, Neha Malhotra and Anthony Wong. I'm really passionate about anti-oppressive practice in medicine and research. Um, I majored in global health in undergrad, and then I did a master's in a program called Health medicine and society. Um, Not very helpful for naming purposes on a resume, but basically it was an interdisciplinary master's in medical humanities where I focused on the history and philosophy of medicine and just spent a lot of time thinking about colonialism and how or what is defined as knowledge um, in medicine. And so now I'm just finding my way through these spaces and learning as much as I can outside the confines of medicine. So um, I guess my goal lately has been to kind of just read growing number of articles that are being saved on my desktop um, that hopefully by the end of this pandemic or at least before this year ends whichever comes first um, I can get through so just a bit of an intro to myself. Um, so my name is Anthony I go by he him pronouns um, I'm a PhD student at the University of Toronto in the Department of Immunology and I've always been interested in EDI work as well but this year I'm the president of our Immunology Grad Student Association so I really wanted to get more directly involved in EDI work because I do think it's necessary as a student leader. And I've always been sort of like my experience in science is that these EDI related conversations are not have, they're not, we don't have them often enough um, because there's this prevailing assumption that these sorts of discussions would somehow compromise objectivity. Um, but that's not the case because science does not occur in a vacuum. Um, and in fact, a lot of health research and translational research and basic science in general directly or indirectly informs healthcare. So what we do has a direct impact on people. So science does not exist in a vacuum. And I really wanted to break down that wall. And also as an aspiring teacher and TA and tutor for high school students, um, EDI values are something that I really want to embed in my teaching pedagogy. So that's another reason why I'm here. So Neha, how are you feeling today about today's podcast? Yeah, I I guess I'm like, okay, (laughs) developing a bit of chronic back pain and shoulder pain from all this Zoom, but it's okay. Um, (laughs) So happy to be here, even if it's with a little bit of a hot pad on my back. Um, But I guess I'm just trying to, like, really make sense of like, this past week, and, you know, all these like democratic norms falling apart in a pandemic. And I think even for the past year, been really trying to make sense of like my place as a medical student and like how healthcare is implicated in um, systemic oppression and trying to also navigate my identity as, and privilege as a cisgender woman and South Asian settler, um, but who also has like lived experiences with trauma and discrimination. So I guess uncertain is how I'm feeling as, with everything going on. Um, yeah, how about you, Anthony? Staying positive, testing negative. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of egregious things happening in the world, right? Um, and also navigating all that during a pandemic, it can be really scary. So I urge all, all our listeners to take care of yourselves and stay safe. And um, while also doing my own reflection, going to this conversation, I also wanted, so on the topic of intersectionality and my own identity and privilege, um, I had to do some self-reflecting as well. So I'm also cisgendered male. Um, I'm also a settler. I, I, I'm East Asian, I come from an immigrant family. And I'm also gay, so I probably won't be giving birth in my lifetime and neither will my partner. So I thought to myself in my reflection, am I the right person to be a host even for this podcast? I'll just keep it real with the listeners right now. Um, Because I don't have expertise or lived experience in childbirth, 
or being a mother or being a black mother. So, but then I thought to myself, um, while that is a valid frame of reference to have going into this conversation, that also is the purpose of this podcast is so that we can learn and listen from people that have uh, lived experience and expertise and amplify their voices using this platform. And also to have conversations that we wouldn't normally be able to have in our everyday lives and also to normalize those conversations. So I'm actually really excited to be here and I'm really excited to introduce today's, today's incredible guest. In this episode of Critical Conversations, we had the pleasure of chatting with Cheyenne Scarlett, who recently completed her master's at Ryerson and wrote on the childbirth experiences of Black women in the greater Toronto area. Her research identifies themes of anti-Black microaggressions and other forms of anti-Black racism that emerged from her interviews with 30 Black mothers. Her research also captured Black mothers' resilience and factors which facilitated a positive birthing experience. She's been working with families as well as current and future healthcare providers to support change in maternity care. We wanted to clearly note that gender and sex are not binaries. Some trans men, gender non-binary people and intersex people also give birth and they also deserve positive birthing experience. However, today we'll be focusing on the experiences of Black women specifically that engaged in Cheyenne's study. We hope that you're able to check out Cheyenne's Facebook and Instagram pages at black.births.of.toronto to learn more about her work and the birthing experiences of Black women in the GTA. And we'll also mention these uh, social media handles in the description for this podcast episode. Yeah, sure. Um, So like you said, my name is Cheyenne Scarlett. I use she, her pronouns. yeah, so I just finished my master's back in September and I've just sort of been navigating this pandemic world. Um, so my research was on the childbirth experiences of black women in the GTA. I had interviewed uh, 30 women. I was hoping for four. I would have been happy with four, but I got such a great response that I actually had to go back to the research ethics board and request Um, that I'd be allowed to interview more people, which was really amazing. Um, So yeah, the the results were just, they blew me away. The whole experience was incredible and it was really amazing getting the chance to talk to these 30 women and hear their stories. That's amazing. Congratulations also on finishing your master's. Um, That's that's awesome during a pandemic no less. Yes, with my children at home with me. Exactly. That's not the way I plan to do it. <laughs> and sorry, Cheyenne, um, how old are you? Just, to, just if you don't mind me asking. I'm 25. Yeah, see, that's 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 the kicker. So Cheyenne is 25. She's a mother. She's finished her master's, so she's winning. And I'm I just turned 26, and I can barely get my own life together. So that's so incredible that you're doing all this great work. So. I don't have my life together. Don't worry. <laughs> Cheyenne's findings were striking. of the participants reported experiencing a negative racial interaction during their birthing experience. The participants reported experiencing racist microaggressions, including assumptions of having an unplanned pregnancy or inability to afford private rooms. And they noted feeling dismissed and rushed by healthcare providers. Some women also identified that their pain medication requests were ignored. Cheyenne also summarized positive factors of the birthing experience, which included religious and family support, as well as good communication with healthcare providers, continuity of care with midwives, and Black or racialized healthcare providers. And so for this part of the conversation, we began by asking Cheyenne what inspired her to do this study in the first place. Yes, but maybe you can kind of share with us, like what inspired you to pursue this research topic? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this research was a part of my uh, master's requirements. so I had originally, I've always been interested in birth um, and and because my background is in child development and I wanted to sort of go more into what does um, the birth experience of the parent mean for their, the, the parent-child relationship going forward. Um, and just because of like the nature of the assignment of the research, it had to be done very quickly. I only had um, the one semester to get it done. Um, So I I wanted to zone in on a smaller um, population to choose from. Uh, Originally, I was going to focus on teen parents, adolescent parents, um, because I did have my first child at 18. Um, 
but it just, it seemed difficult to um, access um, younger parents just because of like consent issues. And I was concerned I wouldn't have enough time to do that. Um, and I was also taking a course called Crit Critical Perspectives on Anti-Racism um, and was introduced to critical race theory. Um, and in doing some of the assignments for that course, I realized that there is no information on black, black birthing experiences in Canada. Um, so what I had hoped to do was to do a study on what does um, you know, do black people experience more racism? Does that contribute to having a more negative experience? What does that mean for um, their parenting going forward? Um, but because I couldn't say this is the birthing experience of black people and this is what it means for their parenting relationships, I had to do find out what is their birthing experience like. Thanks so much for sharing that. And um... It's unfortunate that this kind of information isn't, you know, widely accessible and already out there and trying to understand, I suppose like we, we're probably still even struggling to understand what gaps in current knowledge there are about black women's childbirth experience. Is that something you would agree with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in Canada, we actually don't even keep specific um, race disaggregated data about these things. So like in the US, we know that black women are three to four times more likely to die from a childbirth related cause in the UK, it's actually five times. But in Canada, we actually don't even know what that number is. Um, same with um, black infant mortality rates. Um, it's very clear that in the US, there's, there's a huge um, difference um, between black and white families. Um, but in Canada, we don't have the data to say, hey, this is happening. Um, which kind of allows people to um, brush off that this could be even an issue at all if we don't have this quote unquote proof that it is happening. Right, I think that's, that's so, like it's, that makes me so sad, like it breaks my heart. And it, it also, like it's surprising, but it's also not surprising given Canada's like history of racism as well. And I feel like it, I don't understand why they don't collect race-based data maybe they're surprised what they'll find. And I feel like it's so important that we do collect race-based data because it, it'll expose any inequities that there are in society and in healthcare, et cetera. So I feel like that's so important. And it, it's so honorable that you decided to take it upon yourself um, as a black woman to document the black experience um, for mothers in uh, the GTA and in Canada. So I think that, that's just really, awesome. It was just like a conversation. Um, my first interview question was, tell me about your birth experience. I didn't um, direct them in any way I just said tell me about it like what happened um, and the, for a lot of them it was very like healing to be able to talk to talk to somebody about it a lot of them expressed that they wanted to participate in the study just so that they had space to talk about these um, their experience and some people talked to me for only I think my shortest interview was like nine minutes um, and my longest was an hour and a half and most of them were about 40 50 minutes um, and they just they just talked about things that they didn't have opportunity to speak about before. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's, that's so real, right? Like just talking to real people. And I feel like um, in science, especially like there's often this dichotomy of quantitative versus qualitative data. Like I know, for example, like in immunology, for example, everyone's always asking me like, I wanna see the numbers, you know, what are the, num what are the numbers? But I feel like quantitative, quantitative, quantitative data, sorry, isn't always the most appropriate form of data for every single question. And it also, it also doesn't have to be the only kind of data that we collect. And I think that the qualitative data that you collected is really important and really pertinent to the topic that you're studying, so. So that becomes problematic when we place value on the numbers, especially when the numbers don't really tell the whole story, right? Because we would have to put those numbers into categories and say, you know, they had a moderate birth experience. And like, what does that really mean to those thousand people and how can we really create um, change and specific policies to support um, change that would actually help them directly, especially when we're reducing actual lives and experiences to just to just numbers. Right, that's so brilliant, like I, that you like your work and how you approached it, because I mean, it is dehumanizing to just be reduced to a number. And I feel like we need to listen to real black women and black mothers and it's their stories are important and it's important that we put a name to them and that and just acknowledge that they're real they're they're not just a statistic right and so that's 
so I'd like to bring up, you know, your Facebook page, Black Birds of Toronto. Um, so for anyone that hasn't checked it out, please check it out. So that's a platform that Cheyenne created for Black mothers to share their stories. And um, I read a lot of those stories and they were really touching and some of them were really, um, really impactful for me too. And so were some of the childbirth experiences that you heard about in the GTA, were any of them surprising to you or not surprising to you? Um, I, I don't know. I didn't know what to expect. Um, I had only had my own two birth experiences to, to sort of compare to. Um, and I didn't know, like, I had no idea what to expect. Some of the themes that came out were kind of surprising to me, um, particularly the one about um, insurance coverage. Um, when I was doing like sort of the literature review research, I was looking at any information out there and much of the research is American. Um, and there is some issues with sort of like insurance coverage and getting treated poorly when you don't have private insurance and you rely on the government assistance. Um, but obviously in Canada, that doesn't really happen since the majority of us do have OHIP and that's not something that's considered shameful like it can be in the US. Um, so when the theme of insurance coverage came up here, I was like, why, what would that have to do with anything? Um, and that was related to the private rooms after giving birth. Um, a lot of the, like, I'm not sure if you know the process, but when you're still pregnant early on, you, you do your hospital forms, you check in, you provide them with your insurance information you know, somewhere around 20 to 30 weeks. So they have this already. So it was really shocking to me that when they had already given birth, they had already submitted their paperwork to say, I have insurance coverage, I would like a private room, that they were still being a, accused of not having insurance coverage or not being able to afford um, the roughly $400 a night that it costs to have a private room. If any of these terms are new to you or you need a little refresher, I'm just going to jump in with a quick few tidbits. So intersectionality was a term first coined by Kimberly Crenshaw to define the unique interlocking experience of Black women facing anti-Black racism and sexism, but it has since been also applied to additional forms of oppression. The oppression of Black women in particular has been defined as misogynoir, a term coined by Moya Bailey as the specific hatred, dislike, distrust, and prejudice directed towards Black women that results from the intersection of anti-Black racism and misogyny. Misogynoir is often seen in the form of harmful stereotyping or even physical acts of violence against Black women. One harmful example is the misinformed belief that Black women don't feel pain as acutely as non-Black women, which presented itself even in this group of 30 Black women, as one participant mentioned the ignorance of her pain requests. And, and also I think in your work, I think you, you found that 70% of participants reported experiencing a negative racial interaction during their birth experience. Um, so I guess, did this reaffirm any of the things that you had already expected going to the study? Yeah, I definitely expected that there would be some. Um, I definitely couldn't have put a uh, like a quantifier on it. Um, the, there was of those 70, like of the 30% who didn't, who yeah. said that they didn't experience anything, excuse me, um, for many of them, it was their second baby and they had taken steps to sort of prevent um, these experiences from happening to them again. They, you know, picked a different care provider that they trusted or, you know, had a home birth or something, stayed out of the hospital. Um, they just tried to find ways to sort of protect themselves from it, um, which I thought was interesting that they sort of like acknowledged. I don't know if they fully acknowledged that it was being caused because of racism. I think they just were like, nah, I didn't really like that care provider. I'm gonna get a new one this time. Um, but it came up as a big theme uh, of, of like recommendations that, that were given. I didn't actually explicitly ask for recommendations, but I was given a lot of recommendations and advice that, that these mothers wanted me to like sort of share with others and include um, in my research too. That's a really interesting topic. And um, I think that's a thread that we'd like to probably pull on um, a bit more in some of the later questions we have planned, you know, how this onus is being put on um, Black mothers to kind of take responsibility for um, their care and 
protect themselves, which is an unfair onus to put on anyone um, regardless, but especially at like um, kind of such a sensitive time like pregnancy and giving birth. Um, but, you know, just kind of going back to some of the themes that you were reflecting on, um, we were struck particularly reading some of the quotes that were shared in your, um, in your thesis and your research and um, about racism and microaggressions while seeking and receiving care. And um, in one of them, there was a mother by the name of Nadia and she was sharing how she felt dismissed with her pain and um, some procedural requests um, that were ignored. And um, I'd like to share that with some of our listeners and then follow up with a question with, for you, Cheyenne. Um, so Nadia said that, I didn't think this was going to be an experience where I would have to fight but um, maybe I was just too tired by that point. After a certain point, I was just like, I'm done. Like you guys have broken me and I just, I just can't fight anymore. And so I felt like that was a really important quote that you shared um, in your research. And I suppose based on um, some of the other mothers that you spoke with and your own lived experiences, do you think what do you think has brought us to this point where mothers like Nadia are forced to say, you have broken me? Yeah, Nadia's story was one like particularly difficult one to hear. Um, I think she was one of the like one an hour and a half long interviews. Um, she had a, a really, really difficult um, experience. And what was particularly troubling for me was that like, you know, oftentimes themes come up and people are like, oh, well, what caused this to happen? You know, did this person, you know, have like low education? Were they poor? Were they this? Were they that? Trying to find excuses for why this could be happening. But Nadia was actually a lawyer. Like she, you know, was married. She was, she was all these things that we, we tell people they have to be in order to be treated well, um, if you know what I mean. Um, and with her, with her story, you could sort of hear from the beginning that um, it felt like the healthcare team wanted her to have a C-section right from the beginning. Um, she didn't like that there was so many students that she was just sort of being worked on. Um, right from when she arrived, they told her that she couldn't eat um, just in case she had to have a C-section, which, um, does happen like that is something that is recommended still but has been suggested as not best practice anymore um so she just felt like they were offering intervention after intervention repeatedly trying to get her to the point that she would have a c-section um and as you know like labor is exhausting on its own but when you're constantly you know fighting off these requests for more interventions it just makes it worse um and she just sort of felt like nothing was going for her. She had she had hired a doula who actually um, got in a car accident on the way to the hospital to see her and was not able to be there with her. So it was just one thing after another that was happening to her. Um, and she was just, she just didn't have any more to fight. And in the interview, she was talking about how she, she wished she had been able to fight more, that she felt like, you know, she gave up. Um, and, you know, that's not that's not her fault. Like that, that was not something that happened to her because of anything that she did. Right. Gosh. So like it's stories like these that really make me question kind of what is, what is our goal as healthcare providers going into these spaces when we're providing care? Are we thinking of what is best for our patients or are we kind of consistently thinking about what we believe is best for them and potentially because of this of because of racism, um, bring in biases that potentially may not be best for this patient in particular. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's, it's telling that this exhaustion kind of got to a point for her where unfortunately she, she began to internalize it as guilt for herself as if not doing enough. But I don't think that's, and as you alluded to earlier, there's no sense that a patient at no point should a patient feel that they are guilty for not receiving the care that they deserve because that is that means the health system has failed them, not them failing as taking on some kind of role. Um, exactly. And and I suppose in in thinking about Nadia, if we could kind of think about what some of the other women were also sharing with you about their 
um, experiences of childbirth. What were some of the kind of themes that you found um, were coming up quite a bit across these other voices as well? Yeah, absolutely. So in that same, I had broken up the paper into two themes, the racism and microaggressions, and then the the positives. So staying on the racism and bias and microaggressions, um, there was just like an overall feeling of judgment, um, sort of feeling like they they were a burden to their health to their healthcare provider and like being rushed to to sort of to hurry up so that they didn't have to deal with them anymore, sort of. Um, so there was like a lot of concern that, you know, they didn't want to ask for help. They didn't want to ask their healthcare provider for something that they needed because they felt, you know, they might not get it or their, their healthcare provider was too busy to give it to them. Um, and it just sort of felt like a less of a value placed on them that they, they weren't worth um, being cared for. Um, and not all of these feelings were from the experiences had in that moment. Um, for example, one mom felt judged, like a sense of judgment. Um, she had a really, really difficult labor, um, had an episiotomy, really, really long labor. Um, and the nurse like nicely asked, do you want me to take the baby to the nursery so you can rest? Um, there was nothing wrong with that, of course. But mom felt, if I say yes, she's going to judge me. She's going to think that I'm a bad parent because I can't take care of this baby. Um, and particularly when we consider the history of CAS with, with black parents and also indigenous parents, we're very hesitant to give our babies over to other people. So that nurse did absolutely nothing wrong. She was just asking, can I support you? Um, but because of that mom's life experiences, she automatically felt like I can't, I can't allow her to go. I feel like you're gonna judge me if I say yes. So not all of the time were these experiences in that moment or because of something that somebody did in that moment. According to the Ontario Human Rights Commission, there is little published research on the disproportionality of Black and Indigenous children in the Canadian child welfare system, although it is clear that in Ontario, Black children are overrepresented, particularly in the decision to investigate. In 2013, approximately 8% of Black children in Ontario were the subject of a child welfare investigation for maltreatment, compared to 5% of white children, and Indigenous children represent approximately 30% of foster children. Medical violence against Black bodies is not uncommon, both historically and in present times. So an example that's in extremely relevant to Cheyenne's work would be Dr. Marion Sims, who is commonly known as the quote-unquote father of gynecology, um, but he performed his exploratory surgeries on enslaved Black women without consent or anesthesia because he believed that Black women didn't feel pain. This assumption continues to especially impact Black women as we're exploring today, but a lot of the procedures that he first um, kind of quote-unquote discovered through these surgeries are still in use to this day in, in modern-day gynecology. Oftentimes many doctors or obstetricians are um, older white males and there's a lot of distance between them and the Black mother um, that's going in to give birth and I'm just wondering how can healthcare professionals work to rebuild that trust and to re-earn that trust from Black mothers that they deserve um, so that they can have a positive childbirth experience? Yeah, um, I think the, the biggest one would just be to like to listen, um, to actually have time to listen. Um, I know a lot of the time in my own personal experiences as well, and it was mentioned um, in these interviews that it sort of felt like the doctor's talking to you with one foot out the door already, that they're just like, here's your update, I'm done. Like there's no time for, do you understand what I've told you? Do you need any more information? Um, do you have questions for me? Um, you know, do you have questions about what the next steps are? That there's no, it feels like there's no time for that conversation. Um, and it feels like they don't really want to have that conversation. So if you can't, um, you know, trust that your healthcare provider actually wants to do what's best for you and, um, you know, feels that they, that you can trust that they're going to do what's best for you. I, I would love to say that every doctor is going to do what's best in my best interest. Um, they're never going to harm me. They're never going to do anything to hurt me. And I can't confidently say that, um, you know, so of course there's a fantastic doctors out there, but there's also some that are not. 
Um, and we need to sort of be wary of that. And when you're not taking the time to sort of be aware that we could have those feelings and potentially sort of not explicitly say, but to sort of be like, hey, I'm not like that type of doctor. Like I'm a good doctor, I'm here for you. Um, you know, just creating that space to say, you can, you can trust me um, and allowing that conversation to happen. Yeah, I'm reflecting on the kind of two themes that you brought up where one was feeling like a burden um, because of these kind of very explicit actions of feeling rushed and not wanting to unnecessarily ask um, their healthcare providers um, questions or concerns they may have. Um, but it seems like that in itself, though, may be something many patients may feel just because of kind of how stretched thin the health system is. There's a very particular experience here for black mothers because it, as Anthony was saying, it's embedded within um, a society which has longstanding history and continuous um, actions of racism. And so it's particularly harmful um, to them where, you know, it's, it's this concern of not being seen as an informed mother or not being seen as um, um, being able to take care of their child with that example you gave um, with the nurse who may not have done anything explicitly wrong um, in, in asking about um, kind of wanting to take the baby away from the mother, but she didn't want to be perceived as um, being a bad mother because of this history that, is, that she carries with her. And, and I'm, so, I'm wondering in what ways, um, even outside the walls of the hospital or spaces that we equate with healthcare, um, should healthcare providers be aware of the ways that um, racism is contributing to the experiences among these black mothers? Like, what is that weight that they're bringing in with them that we should be ensuring that um, we're aware of and then can be more explicit about interactions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I totally understand what you're saying that like the healthcare system is stretched thin, doctors, nurses, everybody is stretched thin. Um, and you could be, you know, talking to your patient in a rush because you have 20 more behind them. Um, but to that patient, it feels like I'm not worth your time, right? Mm -hmm. So they might not um, equate that. Um, and also like, if you have, if you need something, then then you need something in that moment. Um, but yeah, considering, considering what happens outside of that, um, just like any messages in media, any messages growing up, even, like healthcare experiences before um, like their, their healthcare during their pregnancy and birth can also influence that. Um, just to like share a personal story of mine, mm -hmm. um, I like obviously I do a lot of research on experiences of black women and um, both Canada and the US have a history of sterilizing black and indigenous women without their consent. Um, and recently I experienced um, an ectopic pregnancy and was concerned that if I had to have surgery, I could get a doctor who, you know, thought, felt that I didn't need to have any more children. And so I had this so much anxiety thinking that if I get a doctor who, you know, is racist, who doesn't like me for whatever reason, um, I might never have children again. Um, and that's, it sounds totally irrational. Like, you know, I'm sure doctors are great but we have this history we know about these the things happening um so it's a very real fear that you're in this vulnerable position um and there's like there's nothing you can do about it and that's just that's this the doctor is always in the position of power the midwife nurse everybody is always in the position of power um and knowing that in pretty much every single social structure Black women, Indigenous women are at the bottom. Um, it's like extra scary when that position of power is even higher and there's, they're caring for you in such a vulnerable way. Yeah, I, I don't think that's an irrational fear at all. I think that's completely valid. And I think like given the history of racism in Canada and the US, and I think in your work also, you found that a lot of Black women are turning to midwives instead of obstetricians um, during care for care during pregnancy and birth, right? And I know Neha has a lot of um, knowledge about this too. Um, um, yeah, I guess like Anthony and I were discussing kind of offline and just reflecting how 
women turning to midwives is not uncommon in response to violence and mistrust. And um, even just thinking about like the history of indigenous midwifery and indigenous women kind of reclaiming midwifery um, as a way to bring birth back to their communities in response to legacies of colonial violence. And, um, and, and so I guess I'm, I'm really glad Anthony, you brought this up because you know this, this gap that is being filled by um, midwives for black mothers is something that um, I'm not surprised to hear as well. And, and, but I recognize in drawing these parallels, there's also like unique histories at play. And so I'm wondering from you, Cheyenne, like um, if you could kind of reflect for, on, for us, um, why do you think black women are choosing midwifery for childbirth? Yeah, um, there's a couple of reasons. I think number one is the structure of prenatal care um, all, and then tied into that also the continuity of care. Um, like with, with the prenatal care, the appointments are much longer, sometimes up to an hour. Um, and then general weekly appointments are much longer too. And when typically with OVs, they're much shorter, like five to seven minutes. And you can't really um, establish a relationship with them. And then also when you have an OB, you're less likely to have that doctor attend your birth. Um, and this is not necessarily the fault of the OB attending your birth. But if they're just running in to catch the baby and leave, like they're not particularly interested in you as a person. They, they don't know you. They just read your chart quick. And like, you know, they didn't spend the last nine months with you. Um, one of the moms really loved that she had continuity of care with her doctor um, because she had experienced a lot of losses. And, you know, her, her, um, that relationship that she had built with her doctor through those losses, you know, there was an extra sense of, of joy when she had a healthy baby, right? And she was happy that she was able to share that um, with this doctor that she had had throughout her pregnancy. Um, and when you don't have that continuity of care, it's just like, this just a person, like that doctor. Um, with my first baby, I don't even remember that doctor's name. No idea who she is. Um, and it kind of, it's, it's kind of sucks that you're sharing this really intimate relationship with a complete stranger. Um, so that is a huge part of um, midwifery care that you have you're given a team of midwives um, and then you're pretty much guaranteed to have to know somebody at least a little bit. Um, and then also with the postpartum care, you're still with them for another six weeks. So when you have an OB, you can have one doctor throughout your pregnancy, one doctor at your birth, and then go to your family doctor or a walk-in for all of your follow-up appointments and um, those early visits with baby. Right. Um, so having that rounded out care with midwives is definitely a huge plus. Um, Another thing I think also, I'm not sure if everyone who chooses midwifery care totally recognizes this, um, but I think it's really important the differences in pay structure for midwives versus OBs. Um, midwives are paid like per patient, they're just paid per care overall, while OBs are paid like per intervention. So I think it's problematic that an, uh, a doctor is essentially rewarded monetarily for performing more interventions, um, which doesn't, is not helpful for anybody. And as in the US, I can understand why that happens, you know, more interventions, more money, more money spent and so on. But in Canada, when the public is paying for these interventions and the salaries of doctors, I don't understand why we continue um, to have this, that system. Um, of course, I totally understand, you know, the expertise that that OBs hold, but it is concerning to me that there is monetary be uh, benefit for doing for being more intrusive. Yeah, um, so so Cheyenne, what do you think that OBs can actually learn from midwifery? So what what in terms of policy or whatever else do you think can change to make the experience better um, for Black mothers going to OBs? Uh, yeah, I think um, absolutely with the policy changes that I just said to sort of find a better way to compensate OBs for the care that they give. Um, and also just changing the structure so that, you know, they're not scheduling 10 people in the same one hour. Um, you know, waiting rooms in OB offices are, you know, it's a whole afternoon that you're spending there. Um, just spending more time with, with people um, to yeah. get to know them a little better and to sort of 
also not even just individual patient, but just like learn about the history of, of black, the black experience in general in Canada. Um, like I was saying with, you know, the history of sterilization, if you are a doctor and you're in a position of power, you need to know that your black patient might know that and might be wary of you just because of the title that you hold, regardless of your completely an amazing anti-racist doctor, because of your title, they will still be wary of you. Mm. That's a really important reflection for, I think, like for me as like a medical student, but I think for all healthcare providers in general, it's like, this isn't about like you as an individual person, like, of course there is space for that too, but I think people very quickly um, forget that it's, it's more about these like professional titles and this like, like system within which you're operating that holds a large history attached to it. And it's like, you need to then as an individual be very explicit about your anti-racist practice. It's not just about a personality, it's about your behavioral change that needs to, needs to build trust. You no longer, I think by virtue of being a healthcare provider, people assume that trust is just there in a relationship, but it's, you have to build trust through active um, behaviors as well. Um, I think, so something that um, we were kind of also hoping for you to reflect on Cheyenne as we get towards the end here, um, is this quote by um, one of the mothers and about um, kind of how it shouldn't be the responsibility of an individual patient. And so Kimberly said, um, it shouldn't be the responsibility of the person giving birth to advocate for themselves. It's something that should be common sense and a basic human right. And, and I think that says a lot about um, our expectations that we put on patients to be advocates for themselves. And I think um, you kind of alluded to this throughout um, our conversation today, um, but we're also hoping just to hear what our listeners can take away um, as like one thing that they could implement in their best practice to ensure that their patient is never put in a place where they are forced to advocate for themselves. What are some positive, um, what would a positive childbirth experience look like? Yeah, so that's a really tough one. Um, there's a, a lot of things I wanna say about that. Um, so Kimberly's story was particularly interesting. She actually lived outside of the GTA um, and the midwifery clinic she was going to was very white, not necessarily like the midwives, but like whiteness within the practice um, and just felt that she wouldn't feel safe there. So she actually moved her whole family to, um, to the GTA to have her baby here, hoping that she would be able to find, um, you know, more people that look like her sort of. Um, and she still experienced racism here. Um, so that's kind of, you know, frustrating that that happened to her. And, and she, what she had said was that, you know, she has, she feels totally fine and confident to advocate for herself. Um, and she worries about those others who don't have the words to do that. Um, considering that, you know, I knew nothing about how power works in society about you know how capitalism and patriarchy work in our society until I got a master's degree. That doesn't sound like you know the general population has access to this information, nor can they communicate it, nor should no should they really. Um, so when we don't all have access to that information, it makes it more difficult. Um, There's something else I was going to say on that thread. <laughs> um, oh, advocacy. Yeah. So there was a study that I also. Um, included that it's really difficult for especially black black parents to advocate for themselves because um, one study found that when when white women advocate for themselves they're you know commended as someone who's taking responsibility for their health um, but when black women do it they're viewed as aggressive and you know a difficult patient mm -hmm. um, so it's really hard for us also like when you I don't know if you've ever heard the term, the longer the birth plan, the longer the C-section incision. Um, and it's something mm -hmm. that like, there's this negative connotation with, with birth plans and actually asking for what you want um, from, from healthcare professionals. Um, this is like more something I've seen sort of like online 
um, being said. I've never interacted with a healthcare provider that said this. Um, but when there's like this mixed messaging over, I know that doctors can be harmful, so I need to advocate for myself. But if I advocate for myself, I'm going to be viewed as an angry Black woman, especially when my partner is Black, and then he's going to be viewed as an angry Black man. Um, so how can I say, like, no, I don't give you consent to do this without them being like, oh, you're being hostile, right? So it's hard to, it's, it's, it's a messy place. Um, and I don't, I understand what you're saying about like patients not having to advocate for themselves, but I think like advocacy doesn't always have to be like you standing in front of parliament, like with your fist in the air, it can just be like, hey, can I have five minutes to think about that? Right. Um, so just allowing space for the for that to happen. Um, you know, trauma, birth trauma happens when there's too much, too fast, too soon. So if you're like, hey, we need to do this now, and then um the patient is like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna die. Um, you know, that just elevates things that don't necessarily need to be elevated. Of course, there are true emergencies in birth, but the majority, like you're allowed five minutes, you can have five minutes to, to contemplate things, to take a moment, to talk to you, whoever is there um, with them. Um, also, I'd like to use the word client rather than patient because pregnant people and birthing people are not sick. <laughs> um, so yeah, like having... But, what you were saying again with you know not having to advocate for themselves, I think they also still need in in some way to take responsibility for their own experience. Um, because, like for example, like with C sections, C sections are not inherently traumatic. It's when they happen because of an emergency that they become traumatic because you it's something you weren't expecting. It was just a lot happening and you weren't aware. So if that client can do their research before be like, okay, this is what will happen. This is what I can expect afterwards. If emergencies do come up, they're not totally blindsided. Um, of course, they may still feel, have negative feelings about this, but they won't be as traumatic and as difficult to process later. Right. And so that actually kind of ties into one of our um, questions in the chat, episiotomies or other interventions for black mothers. I'm Brazilian and there are black moms and black moms, and there are black moms that do not have access to epidurals. Mm, that's a tough one. Um, in this particular study, the the uh, C-section rate was actually pretty much on par with the uh, national rate. So, of the thirty women, there was seven C-sections. Um, what was concerning for me, though, was that two of those seven they did report being able to feel the initial incision, um, which thankfully, of course, was cor like quickly corrected. But I was just like, that doesn't sound right to me. If it was one person, I would have been like, okay, yeah, that's like, you know, bad luck with the anesthesia or something. But because it was two and, you know, there is concerns that um, doctors interpret the pain of black people um, less than white people, I was wondering, you know, did they not have the initial uh, pain medication right? Um, so I don't have any proof of that, but I was just a little skeptical of that being, um, that coming out of it. Yeah, and like, I think you touched on this earlier too, like even within midwifery, there are challenges that black mothers continue to face and the experience of, of black mothers are different from, um, white mothers or non-black mothers, even within midwifery. So that leads into another question that we got in the chat. So um, so someone asks, I was wondering too, what kind of what kind of racial microaggressions did you find were enacted, um, whether in midwifery or by OBs or nurses, et cetera? And also why did you choose to include factors that made births positive experiences? Yeah, um, so the first part, like what kind of microaggressions, they were like smaller things like um, so for example, one of the intake questions um, for midwifery, for midwives was sort of like, was this a planned pregnancy? Just sort of to evaluate what concerns this person, they might be feeling, you know, um, about the pregnancy in general, and if they need any support about around that, specifically if it was unplanned. Um, but this, uh, a midwife did ask one 
one of the participants was your child an accident, not was this a planned pregnancy? It was, is this kid an accident? Um, so that's just a small change on words that really influence um, the relationship going forward and that, that level of trust. And, and like you automatically feel a sense of judgment and how can you attend any appointment after that knowing that that midwife is looking at you thinking your baby was an accident you um you know in, engaged in risky sexual behavior and you're just automatically you know sort of turned off that relationship because of how they are looking at you um and then to answer the why i included the positives was because there is no singular black experience. So that is a, uh, also a big part of critical race theory that there is no such thing as the black experience looks like X. Um, there can be common themes, there can be um, you know, overarching generals, but there's no, this is what it looks like. Um, and also that you know, your experience at one point in your lifetime may be different at a different point in your lifetime. Um, so I thought it was really important to just highlight that, you know, just because you're black and can be subject to racism does not mean you're doomed to have a negative experience. Um, and that, you know, there are positives that come out of it. And also just to sort of point out what are the good things that we can keep doing. I think that it's still really important to highlight that there are good things going on. Um, I think it's amazing that we have access, the majority of us have access to, um, to healthcare without being concerned of going home with a $100,000 hospital bill, like many, many people in the States have to deal with. Also that like midwifery care is covered for those who do not qualify for OHIP. Um, so that's like really amazing too. Like these are some great things specifically like for immigrants. Um, who or whoever doesn't uh, um, qualify for OHIP. So it's not, our midwifery, our mid, um, healthcare system is not totally awful, um, but there are a lot of ways that we can improve it. Um, thank you so much, Cheyenne, for kind of unpacking this and being so open to these like on the spot questions as well um, about the work that you've done. And um, I think it's left a lot for all of us to think about and reflect on and in the ways that we frame, I think, experiences in healthcare, whether that's considering the ways that harm is done or, but also highlighting the ways in which resiliency is shown by black mothers and the way that they are actively advocating for themselves. And what are some of the positive, fa positive factors that we can continue um, to ensure that we integrate into our care and make sure that child, you know, childbirth is an experience that, um, that, that is filled with joy um, rather than rather than this um, the kind of harm that you've highlighted. Um, so with that, I just like to thank you so much for your time and you know being so open to sharing your thoughts and perspectives and um, bringing not just you know your professional research expertise into this, but also like your own lived experiences and um, and we just really are thankful for for you. So after our conversation with Cheyenne, Neha and I had a lot of key reflections and a lot of things that we were left thinking about and we thought it would be helpful for us to share our reflections with you as learners and listeners of this podcast, just to provide some additional insight on the key points that we had in our conversation. And so one of the things that we were left thinking about was that there are no clear cut solutions in any of this work, to any of this work, and which is how we realized the importance of dialogue and continued conversation to move towards more equitable healthcare. Yeah, and I think like one key example of this is how it showed up in our question to Cheyenne about advocacy and how um, it's like really important for healthcare providers to advocate for their patients and in cases in which the, they're seeing them being harmed or like um, receiving unequitable healthcare. And I think this, as like a medical student, this shows up for me in our accreditation standards as doctors, where health advocate is like a pillar. But then, and, and so I think that was something that I was kind of thinking of as a way of moving forward. But then I think Cheyenne's response was really interesting in that, you know, he was like, although we shouldn't be pu putting the onus on mothers to advocate for themselves, 
they should still be given the space to do so if that's what they want to and, and feel is important to them and that power shouldn't be taken away from them. And I think that just totally kind of flipped my understanding of like what health advocate is often termed as in our medical spaces where it's like, you know, you are supposed to be speaking up for patients, but instead like in this case, it was like, you know, maybe it's not you speaking for your patients. It's just making space for them to speak for themselves. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really important. And also like, I think we shouldn't forget that the healthcare system is a microcosm of greater society and it is embedded in a society with systemic racism embedded in it, right? And and also misogyny. And that's what, that's where positionality and also intersectionality become important concepts when we think of health, healthcare through, through an equity lens. And I think that it reminds me of the conversation that we had with Cheyenne or the part of the conversation where, you know, we pointed out that a lot of doctors are, are white men, just statistically, and also, and so there's a lot of distance between doctors that are white men and um, patients that are black women. And that's where also intersectionality becomes important. And um, the intersection specifically between anti-black racism and misogyny. Um, yeah, and I think like this idea of like mis misogynoir, like kind of black women's experiences being unique in healthcare is really important to bring up because, you know, when intersectionality was being written by Kimberly Crenshaw or misogynoir was being written by like Moya Bailey, like they were talking about this like very specific type of like hatred, dislike and distrust and prejudice being directed towards black women. And, you know, in healthcare that often shows up it, in terms of like who we see as like being a quote unquote good or bad patient. And even in terms of how self-advocates you see, you know, like how specific patients, when they're self-advocating for themselves, they're seen as really like responsible, um, taking ownership of their health, like good quote unquote patients. But then, you know, as in science work has described, like these same women, when they were self-advocating for themselves, like they were seen as being quote unquote difficult or like burdensome patients that were like causing trouble and unnecessarily um, disrupting the care that these healthcare providers thought that they should be giving them. And it's just kind of, I think, important to use these theoretical concepts that have been like are grounded in um, Black feminist writers and who, are, who have been thinking about this for so long. But now, like in healthcare, we're thinking about it for the first time, I suppose. Um, but, you know, this is not something new. But as you said, Anthony, like healthcare is part of the wider um, social spaces in which people are coming in from and is and is it's important to locate us as people but also the system itself yeah i think those are really important refl reflections and i think I, I i that's absolutely absolutely you know a problem right is that is that black women are seen a certain way and also and within within healthcare too and I think that the burden shouldn't be on them to have to advocate for themselves constantly. It's 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 care that they it's equitable care that they ought to receive. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't take that power away from them um, to advocate for themselves. So I guess what's important from this is is where do we go from here, right? So what kind of recommendations um, are there to improve current experiences of Black uh, women? Well, I guess there's a couple, right? Like the first bit is thinking about what does medical education curriculum shape people as, as they're kind of going through um, learning about medicine and like, how do we see health advocacy talked about as like a professional standard for us, but also how do we see um, like inequities in health being talked about? Like, are these kind of just things that are out there in the world that are like, presented as statistics or are we seeing patients as people in, in, in embodying these inequities and bringing them into our, into our conversations and such that like we are being prepared to be reflective practitioners and also um, knowing like what what is defined as like good and bad care like you don't have to always define good care as like a particular health outcome but like you know, the in quality improvement conversations, they talk about patient reported outcomes and like what is important to your patient. But then even in that space, like I'm thinking this is where um, another area of research for us is not just the medical curriculum, but then like the wider quality improvement in health systems. Like 
when we're talking about patient reported outcomes or bettering the system, um, what like what indicators are we using to benefit from an equity lens so that like it's not just like the select few that are already receiving comparably better care, even if it's worse care by our standards. Like even if we're saying that this is um, like an like there's a certain number of patients being harmed and then we improve care for them. But even within those patients being harmed, like are we supporting it from an equity lens where it's like not just those at the top of who are harmed are benefiting further and that it's it's, it's like embedded from like a systems level improvement too. Um, and I think even reflecting on Cheyenne's findings is important here. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of um, research to be done still building off of Cheyenne's work. Um, and also I think we need to remember to really uplift the, the, the voices of uh, black women and their birthing experiences and recognize that each one of their stories is important um, moving forward. Um, and you know, whether it's ongoing training for implicit bias and racism or curriculum changes, um, I think this is all important to keep in mind if we want to move towards more equitable healthcare. Yeah, and I think just thinking about like Cheyenne's findings is so striking where 70% of the um, mothers that she interviewed reported experiencing a negative race, um, interaction, racial interaction during their birthing experience. And I think that's like something that's just not reported. And when we're talking about quality improvement and, you know, participants reported experiencing racist microaggressions or assumptions of having an unplanned pregnancy or an inability to afford private rooms because of being a Black woman. And I think that not only were, were they kind of being dismissed and rushed by healthcare providers, like this, like reflecting back on like the kind, just the pain medication request being ignored. Like this is, these are all things that are located in a wider health system that's like burned out. And like a lot of patients experience not having enough time with their doctors, not feeling like they're able to like really feel like they're being heard. But then kind of the equity lens comes in here is that, you know, what are the unique experiences and histories and like social locations that these women are bringing in that then these this like burned out health system causes a very different kind of harm to them and I think that's where we need to like and I think that's where the education piece comes in but also it's not just about education like you don't need to go and become an expert in critical race theory in order to do better I think it's just that just that you're willing to have a critical conversation that makes it about how you can do better in, in, in including these lenses in your work and not necessarily feeling like it's a personal um, shortcoming or some as if like your personal values are questioned in all this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think that one of the major major themes of this conversation is that we need to look at, at this you know, through with an equity lens and and we just need to do better. <laughs> we, need yeah. to, we need to do that's better. <laughs> the, that's, the, that's the kind of um, goal, right? Like everyone just wanting to do better and like just not knowing how to. And like hopefully at least like conversation is a good starting point for people, but also, um, you know, the conversation doesn't stop here. Like it now goes for everyone that was kind of in this conversation to um, like go and like read about like the different like health outcome differences for specifically in um, you can think about birthing experiences for black women or you can go read about the ways in which people are articulating these words in different circles like maybe they're not in um, maybe they're not being articulated by like um, healthcare providers maybe they're being written within like the child welfare system and like what does that talk about in terms of mistreatment and mal maltreatment for black children where only eight percent of children in Ontario are black but then um or sorry like only like um five percent of white children are susceptible to child welfare investigation whereas eight percent of black children are or that like indigenous children represent 30 percent of foster children like I think it's like figuring out ways in which you can go learn from other spaces that are already doing this work and not necessarily having to wait to 
to see it in your own area of discipline or expertise. Right. Yeah. So for the listeners out there, you know, I think your education or your learning doesn't have to stop here. You know, we, we implore you to go do your own reading and maybe even of, or we suggest even of Cheyenne's own work, you know, you can go read her own, read her paper. You can follow her um, Instagram and on social media. So she's on Instagram, black.births.of.toronto. So you can read about her work there um, and and go do some learning for yourself and just think, think to yourself, how can you do better? Um, moving forward. Yeah. How can we all do better? Yeah. Thanks so much for tuning in. And until next time, take care. Be well. Yeah. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks so much for listening.